The Sportsman's Nation is a 2% for conservation certified business. And on August 21st, you can join other conservationists all over the world in supporting Community Conservation Day. It's a day for anyone to give their time and or dollars back to their local ecosystems and favorite conservation causes. For more information on how you can participate, visit fishandwildlife.org. Check out Dogs Are Treat at dogsartreat.com. And if you go to their website at checkout and enter the code HXP20% off, you will get 20% off of your entire order on all of their branded products. Leashes, tieouts, medical kits, paws are protected. Build your pack from the ground up and support a fellow houndsman that supports your lifestyle. Enter the code HXP20% off. At checkout, go to the website today at dogsartreed.com. This is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in here. The original podcast for the complete houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Get up there! Yeah! 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 Good boy! Good boy, Ranger! Uniting houndsmen across the globe from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many day how many days a week do you spend on As much as I can to be honest with you. Anytime that I get I'm I'm out there. Join us for every heart pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else, I'm gonna hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. <laughs> Welcome to this week's edition of the Houndsman XP Podcast, and this is going to be a very short pre-roll. We have got Gavin Lippius back on the podcast. Lauren is riding shotgun with me on this one to co-host, and what a great interview. Uh, we're going leopard hunting, and we're going to hear about some amazing stories from Gavin and his experiences hunting leopards in South Africa. We're going to talk about scenting conditions. We're going to talk about dog performance. Uh, what a great interview. It's so good that I don't even want to waste your time listening to much of a pre-roll on it. It's it's going to it's going to make you go, wow. I mean, it, there's a lot of wow factor with this one. So, like I said, I'm going to keep it short. Make sure you're picking up our merchandise over at dogsartreed.com. They're, they're carrying our hats over there. We're going to be adding some things to that shortly. Uh, 
And um, guys, we got a box shaker here, and the box is blowing up, and we got a hard strike, and we are going to dump the box. Southern Hound Honey Magazine is the most comprehensive magazine that represents your lifestyle as a houndsman. If you can hunt it with a hound, it is being covered in the pages of Southern Hound Honey Magazine. You also get an in-depth look at the men and women who are engaged in this lifestyle, living it every day to the fullest. From the Rocky Mountains to the Southern Swamps and across the ocean with articles about our international houndsmen and what they're chasing across the pond. Go to southernhoundhunting.com, get your subscription for $15 a year. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine, promoting the fair chase experience. So. The old man can work technology, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Once in a while. <laughs> Every once in a while. You mentioned that... Um, you're waking earlier since you since you hit those 50s and that. And something I wanted to ask you, so from your perspective, how much more dangerous are you becoming in your in your later years? How much more mentally competent and dangerous do you feel? Well, it depends. If I'm working out and I'm still training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I feel pretty confident. If I take some slack time and... Uh, you know, if if I keep training my mind, then then yeah, I still pretty, feel pretty confident. I think that he's smarter now, so he's taking the right risks and the smarter risks versus <laughs> when he was probably like, you know, fifteen to twenty when you're just figuring things out and learning <laughs> via <That's laughs> experience. Right. That's sort of that's sort of what I was alluding to, yeah. So, so getting um, how the mind is helping now, not just uh, not just the biceps, eh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I you know I I have to I can tell though if I start taking time off from workouts and and doing stuff like that, then my self confidence goes down on things that I can do. But if I stay on top of all that stuff keep my mind fresh you know there's all kind of, you, you know the science behind working out and the the endorphins yeah. and different things that it dumps into your system and and eating right and things like that even though i'm sitting here pounding pints of coors light <laughs> you know <laughs> you know but i had three or still have them but but three older cousins all boys all were fairly influential in me growing up at different stages. But I remember going back to the middle guy. He used to be a bit of a, a runner, a bit of a long-distance runner. And we have a famous race in South Africa called the Comrades Marathon. And he was training for that and drinking lots of beer. Yeah. And it didn't make any sense. But at that stage, he was quite convinced he was carb-loading. That's right. You're carb-loading. <laughs> Did you know that in Wisconsin, there's actually runs where you drink beer at certain stages? <laughs> they are Wisconsin. Wisconsin is its own beer drinking culture. This it's, is correct. It's amazing. I mean, why am I drinking what I'm drinking? Like I had at the Wisconsin Bear Hunters Convention. Culture. 
<laughs> Wisconsin culture. That's all it is. It's not Chris's poor influence from our discussion earlier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, we've got a good connection. Let's uh, let's try to roll this thing roll this thing out. What have you got on the books for today, Gavin? Um, so I, I went back into our um, text there, and you said that you sort of want to run something along the lines of some stories and um, maybe touch on some scenting. You didn't really want to get deep into it. I don't know if that's still your program for the day. You tell me, man. Yeah. So, you know, I thought we'd kind of. We'll just let it roll out, but but I did want to get into some sending stuff in South Africa. You had said something about writing an article. I don't want any spoilers for, um, you know, your sending in South Africa article that you're writing. So, um, that's where I'm at. I think I think he really left us hanging with his last episode. Everybody was at the edge of their seat, and then it ended, and we're all all like, "What? Like?" I need more. Like there's just so much more to this that we're all just grasping for. So <laughs> I'm sure we want to, we want to learn more about, you know, just kind of pick up where you left off there. And, you know, I might have some questions about my experiences, even though, you know, I'm hunting here in Wisconsin, New Mexico, but we, we want to hear more. Wisconsin, New Mexico. Those aren't even bordering states are like 20 hours apart. At 24, and um, I said Wisconsin <laughs> or New Mexico. 36 if you're driving through a huge winter storm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and from a hunting perspective, where would you rather be? Wow, that's a really good question. I think between those two states, I would rather be in New Mexico. Mm. Because it's just so diverse, and you can get conditions kind of like Wisconsin, and you can get tough conditions in the desert um but i uh, you know if you were to say where would you rather hunt you know in the northern hemisphere in north america i don't know because i just haven't seen enough yet are you you primarily a coon hunter lauren or do you or, or am i wrong um that's where i got my start was coon hunting um but i've i've been dabbling big time in bear hunting as well and i tried a little bit of cat hunting out in New Mexico. Mm. And I mean, I didn't try the dogs did. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a team effort. It's always a team. Effort. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Gavin, welcome back to the podcast. We'll just pick the conversation up right here. Um, you know, like Lauren said, I think everybody, I, I've gotten so many messages and things. Uh, since we were on the first podcast with us uh, about everything from like, man, I could spend some time in camp with this guy. You know, I don't even drink, but I could sit around a campfire and drink a beer with this guy, you know. So I'm glad that you agreed to come back on and uh, share some more of your wit and wisdom with the Houndsman XP crowd. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think we, we kind of laid out our plan there a little bit, but um, just to bring everybody up to speed, you're a professional hunter in South Africa. And, uh, you know, what kind of things are you, what kind of things are you hunting with your hounds in South Africa? 
So myself, I've done a fair amount of bush pig hunting, and that's pretty much where the foundation of my hound um, knowledge is derived from. That's where my base experience is. That's where I, I learned most of what I know. Um, and then I crossed over into leopard hunting. And I did it at, 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 a, at a stage where I was even using the same pack to hunt leopard. I, I subcontracted for the late Tennis Boater, um, that's one of the guys that was quite instrumental in bringing um, hounds to the trophy hunting um, market, to the trophy hunting um, industry. Um, hunting leopard with hounds goes way back in, in South African history, but it was never really done as a, uh, a service to an outfit or a service to a professional hunter or to a client. It was more so just depredation work. So I transitioned through my bush pig pack into using um, some lead dogs from Tennis Boerta and then feeding my bush pig hounds into that afterwards. Um, and that's where I'm at now. So obviously I'm a bit stranded in Australia right now, but what I do is, is leopard over hounds. Um, we train a lot on caracal as well. So caracal would be similar to your, your bobcat and you'd – the listeners would get the, the immediate crossover benefit of training on like Bobcat for mountain lion. I have read some articles, interestingly, where some guys don't want to do that. Or maybe you would say sort of training on coons for bigger game. But yes, so we, we can train on caracal just so that um, the hounds are active. Leopard permits and the access to hunt leopard is very restricted. So it's nothing that you can compare to like mountain lion tags or bear tags, at least to my outsider knowledge. Um, leopard is, is quite a protected animal. And um, to be able to to uh, just go out and hunt, you know, on a weekend, take a few days off work or something, go hunt leopard is not possible. In every situation, it's based on a permit. Yeah. Okay, Jump. so there's no pursuit season. It's, it's, you have to have a hunter with a tag or you have to have a tag in order to cast your hounds out on a leopard. That's correct. So you'll get two types of, um, two types of permits. One will be a depredation permit. So you'll find that a, a livestock farmer or a valuable game farmer will apply to the government for a tag to uh, remove an animal that is causing damage. Uh, and then the other option would be where it's a CITES-regulated permit, and that skin and skull is then able to be tagged and exported. So those are the two real – you can do it illegally. I mean, you could go to your uncle's farm, and you can go and hunt leopard, and that happens. But, um, but from a perspective, if you want to stay within the law and you want to do it on a long-term basis, then – you have to work within that framework. Right. So, you know, we're talking long-term doing it the right way and everything. I'm, you know, there's, there's so much when you get into the word trophy hunting um, and there's so much into it and, and the antis have their, their thoughts on it. And, you know, ours is completely different. Here we go. But I'm wondering, no, I'm not exactly even going to go into that. No, seriously. But, this is like the but, major rabbit path. <laughs> that that Gavin and I got on. So I was actually going to bring this up, Lauren. Let's just 
slay that dragon okay. right now and talk about trophy hunting. Okay. And I guess my question leading into it is how good is South Africa and its um, provinces, what are they called? Provinces, territories. Um, okay. At the management of the game and the conservation of the game, because hunters are conservationists. First and foremost, the, the right ones, the good ones. <laughs> um, so what is like the management plan and how does that work for the leopard and why is trophy hunting okay? Okay, so let me let me before or, Gavin jumps in, let me explain something here. If you ask Gavin that many rules or that many okay. questions, <laughs> we're gonna have like forty minutes of conversation here just answering that question. <laughs> this guy yeah. So go for it, Gavin. All right, so, so the starting point is we speak of South Africa, but really I refer to Southern Africa. So we'll include Mozambique, Zambia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Namibia, South Africa into that conversation. And that's typically the area that Southern African professional hunters are ranging. If you in Namibia, you sort of, you know, Namibians will, will protect their home territory and they don't really want to see people from other countries coming in there. And it's the same for the Zimbabweans and it's the same for the South Africans, but there is a lot of crossover. And from a management perspective and a legislation perspective, they are very, very similar. Okay. South Africa, the country, has pioneered a lot of um, really good management um, principles. But if you go to, to Zimbabwe, you'd find exactly the same thing. So very effective at managing all game species and in particular, those iconic um, big ticket species, those big romance species, elephant, lion, leopard, buffalo, rhino. Now giraffe is becoming part of it and that. So yes, very effective. Um, for two reasons one there was there was a great emphasis put on conservation from a very early age in the in the, the the progress of all of those countries and i think those are are principles that have been carried throughout that western world so what the states was doing 250 years ago is similar to what africa was doing 250 years ago in those colonized regions so setting aside big areas and 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 um um legislating them to forever and ever be just game preserves or game reserves that type of mentality and then the actual practical implementation implementation of that on the ground has formed the basis of that trophy hunting regulation and it has always been seen in most circles as a conservation tool, one of many. It's a tool in the toolbox. It's not the only. Um, it has its benefits and it has its negatives. But, um, yes, very effective. Well, 250 years ago in North America, we were market hunting. You know, you go back, you go back 175 years ago and we were eradicating the, the – 
American bison from the Great Plains. So I was going to say we didn't know what we were doing yeah, back then. <laughs> the the great the great American conservation movement didn't start until about the the eighteen eighteen seventies eighteen nineties. You know, into that that realm where we really started looking at um, what we were actually doing around nineteen hundred is when um, you know people really started taking a look at it. And thinking, hey, we got to do something different. Just well, that's me, me geeking out. And I'm going to tell you, if we go for too far down this path, Seth is going to be pissed off because he is not in <laughs> on this podcast. And and we're going to have you back on a, a future podcast for that. But but real quickly, Gavin, tell us, you know, just just tell us what in in five minutes or less. Tell us the the difference in the perception of trophy hunting versus what trophy hunting actually is in South Africa. And we'll pick up that conversation right after this word from our sponsor. Houndsman XP is very proud of our partnership with the organization Freedom Hunters. Freedom Hunters is a nonprofit organization that takes America's veterans hunting from field to field, from the battlefield to a field near you when you volunteer your time to take America's warriors hunting with you and your hounds. It's easy. Go to houndsmanxp.com, click on the partnership tab, and it will take you to Freedom Hunters. You can go direct to their website to make donations at freedomhunters.org. Support America's heroes. Let's pay it back. Visit Freedom Hunters at freedomhunters.org or go to houndsmanxp.com and you can find them on our website from field to field. And now back to the show. So we get that um, that perception um, across our screens every now and then on social media, that, that external, that outward perception of this idea that it's... Um, people coming to Africa beating their chests and standing on the head of a dead elephant and boosting their egos. But the people that are on the ground and not necessarily just people that are only in the trophy hunting industry, but you know, anyone that is within arm's reach of that, and they may even be urban dwellers, their perception is it's a tool. It's 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 a way of funding um, wildlife conservation. And 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 of course, there's the, the, the detractors from that. And even within the science community that are still working in those trophy hunting areas or areas that are benefiting from trophy hunting, they may still have personal aversion to the killing of animals. But as soon as I step back and look at it from... The, the, the macro view, it's completely accessible, acceptable and necessary. Well, you think about the, just the benefit of, of where that money goes and how people's lives are impacted and the, the selection of that certain one animal from that species. I mean, people think trophy hunting and you're just going out and just slaughtering whatever, but you spend weeks, days, Looking after, looking for one specific animal of that species. Right? That's correct. Yes. yes. So, um, 
within that hunting territory, you will be looking for the most suitable animal to harvest in that framework of best conservation practice. And that is typically the post-prime male. Now, there certainly are parts of, of um, harvest, even in trophy hunting areas, that may target females and may target young males. But a lot of that just has to do with population control. So that sure. may still happen in your trophy hunting areas. But typically, area to area, they're managing to, 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 to have the least impact on the environment and the greatest flourish of all fauna and flora. Sure. There's, there's a specific reason why certain animals are taken. Exactly. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the term trophy hunting? Or how is how is it perceived over there? I don't know. I don't know if that's the right. Well, question what to you're ask. what you're trying to ask is, you know, trophy hunting's become a dirty word, even where some of the leaders in the hunting industry in North America or the United States have shied away from it. You know, the, well, and we talk about trophy bucks here yeah, and all that. We use and, we use the word. And and so I think what the question you're asking is is what does trophy hunting mean to your South person in Southern Africa, your average person in Southern Africa? Is that, that accurate, Lauren? Yes. And, and yeah. The answer to that would depend on the demographic that you're going to ask it to. Um, so I suppose my response to that is going to be biased in because of the background that I, that I, that I have. Um, if I try to step out of that box and try to put my mind into to other demographics, then there may well be a poor perception of the term trophy hunting in uh, Pretoria, the capital where your 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 cousin has um, has family from. There may well be that, but but equally, a lot of the bush culture, a lot of the the, the wildlife heritage that 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 is still trailing into our our modern culture. So we're still romanticizing the pioneer. We're still um, appreciating and 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 giving kudos to the pioneer mentality and spirit and all of that builds into. Or, or, or hunting is part of that and builds into that. So it's not like we, like even in most demographics, would shoot down the person that's making a living in the wild because that is still trailing in our modern, our modern world. And I, I think that is parallel to where the hunter in the United States is. There's a lot of nostalgia that goes along with that. You know, mm-hmm, that's the word. Some of our, some of our um, legendary houndsmen, we have these visions of reliving that and re, you know, going back to those days. And um, I have got so much stuff to say on this, but I, I'm going to tell you that. You know, we're, we're going to be doing a new segment on the podcast called Point Blank, where we're going to discuss all this sort of stuff. And uh, 
like I said, Seth Seth will be upset if <laughs> if he's not involved in this well, conversation. We can just leave it as it's either nostalgic or it's an emotional. <laughs> Yes, and we're going to leave you it, on the word. Gonna, we'll that, leave it at that. We're going to leave it hanging out there. And Gavin, I want you to be back on the podcast for some of these point blank conversations where we just we attack every one of those issues and we talk about them and and we don't pull any punches on it and we just talk straight straight dope on on all of that sort of stuff and I, the chips fall where they may. I did have to ask it though, because, you know, I talked about, you know, my family in South Africa and, you know, we've had discussions back and forth and they might not necessarily agree with what I do and what you do. So we've had those, those conversations and we'll, we'll have those next time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How do we segue into what we really want to talk about, Lauren? Right. Um, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) We want to talk to, we want to talk to Gavin about you know, how performance in South Africa, especially on things, you know, the big and dangerous game. I mean, Jag, or I'm sorry, I keep saying Jaguar. Leopard is nothing to sneeze about. And they're, how dangerous is a leopard? So we find that leopard is one of the, and most of these statistics and that will be, will be coming out of the trophy hunting industry. But the leopard would be the most um, the most sure to attack. So if you put yourself in that area, even above you, a uh, above a Cape Buffalo. So Buffalo do they really do attack a lot, and you'll find that Buffalo probably are in terms of deaths to hunters are the highest on the list. Buffalo, elephant, they'll be up there, um, and then maybe following that would be something like lion. There'd be very few left leopard deaths or inflicted deaths but yes they they're very fast they're very dangerous fang and claw they can smash several hunters standing in a line before anybody gets a shot off um yes they're very quick i've been attacked by a leopard i can't tell you how quick it covered that ground and um i was very confident and before i knew it it was in my face and smashed the shotgun out of my hand and I put my hand in its mouth to stop it actually from biting me. And it bit right into my hand and buckled my finger right back. But that's how I stopped, stopped that cat. And okay. so quick, so, so quick. Tell us more. Where did this start? <laughs> to you getting your hand inside this thing's mouth. And you talked about buffalo and elephant. But, but leopard is the only thing you're using hounds on, right? That's right. And okay. um, so so we have a tradition of, or, or let's not say, it is part tradition, but it is also like a, a, a practical follow through. So animals that you can hunt with relative success by, by a stalking method, that's typically what has flowed through into the tradition. And animals that are very cryptic, nocturnal, solitary, difficult to stalk or impossible to stalk almost. That's sort of where hounds have found their home in Southern Africa. So don't gloss over this hand in the leopard's mouth deal. Uh, yeah, I still have some questions answered. Do you, do you, 
Do you, can you give us a play-by-play of when you you took the hounds out of the box to the part where your hand is in its mouth? <laughs> like, yeah, sure. So, um, so we were doing a hunt in in um, the Limpopo province of South Africa. Is uh, so that's where I was based at that stage, and um, it was actually not too far from home. And then we weren't having much success in that area, and we moved to a property that was within a short driving distance from my home actually which suited me so um we had a cat that was moving in an area it was a dry river line that we were that he was basing most of his 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 movements on and pocketed with something that's called copies so copy is like a hillock is 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 a hill um it can be um several boulders placed on each other or it can be just a, a, a large undulation a rise but it's it's just a south african term an afrikaans term copy so it's a perfect habitat for the cat and there was one moving through there and then one morning they got nice tracks of a cat moving to the copy i was at home and and being there i was able to take quite a few dogs i took i think it was about 11 dogs with me that day and um went found the tracks nice and early in the morning, put the dogs down and the cat tried to make a run to the river line, but they caught him before that. And it, there wasn't much, not many trees, not much, um, no place for him to really tree. But with 11 dogs in the pack, and that was eight hounds, two doggos and one burvantont. A burvantont is a, is a greyhound, a farmer's greyhound. Ooh, and, Seth uh, is really going to be mad. Yeah, uh, he is. <laughs> yeah. So, so they they caught him. He wasn't a massive male. He wound up weighing sixty-seven kilograms, which would be what a hundred and thirty or hundred and forty pounds, somewhere around there. I think about that. So, so not a massive cat, but a good size. And um, they caught up to him. And it was a Canadian hunter that was with the hunting party, which was made up of two professional hunters. And they were trying to get into me, and we didn't have any radio comms. Something was going on with their their radio, and we were trying to communicate via cell phone, and it just wasn't working. Reception was really poor. We get a few words, and then it would cut out. And I'd hear them like the last word say, "We're going to try to get a better signal," and then it and then it would go. And um, so it was a long bay up with this cat, unusually long. And I started to get a little worried that the dogs were actually going to maybe start to stretch him. I had two dog or females in there, uh, the Burvan taunt, and, and they put a lot of pressure. And so I moved a little closer than I usually would because we give a lot of respect to the leopard. And we try not add the human factor into it until the last minute. And so just let the dogs work the cat, work the cat, work. And they were doing that. And, um, and I moved in a little bit closer and... There's that stage of experience that, that you go through when when you think you know everything. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then you find out you don't. Or <laughs> you think you know how it's going to go. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, so I moved in a bit too confidently and I started to try and damper the dogs a little bit by just by whistling and, and shouting at them, but it didn't. It, it did the opposite. And obviously it was going to do the opposite, but I was I was trying to do something to prolong this that the when the client arrives we don't really have a stretched out skin, which is 
a, a real problem because someone has to fit the bull then. So um, I was trying to do that and then the cat sort of just stood up and he turned and he looked at me and he put his ears down and he put his tail up and he just started walking straight to me, ignored the dogs like they were mosquitoes and just walking straight at me. And um, I had a single barrel 12 gauge shotgun with slugs in and I, and I know I cannot shoot the leopard. I, I cannot shoot the leopard because once I shoot the leopard, that's the hunt over for the client. And then what happens with that tag? What happens to the cost? It's, it's not really an option unless it's like serious threat to life. It's not an option to shoot the leopard. And I was really hoping the dogs would, would stop and stop and stop. And then the next minute he went from that stage to a cross in my face. And... That area. How, had a lot how of, far? How far away was he? See, so it was about thirty meters away. Okay. And he started. Yeah, he started moving at me with with um, with real determination. Mm -hmm. Probably about fifteen meters out. And the dogs and, are still trying to bay the whole time. They're still yeah. trying to bay up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're around him. They're surrounding him. They. They're going in, the, the, the Bourvintant is biting him on the bum, he'll turn in, and, he'll, and then he, and so there's Sikobos in that area, which is a, um, which is a, uh, a pioneer species, and it's typically uh, uh, proliferant in areas where there's been overgrazing, and it sort of excludes grazing, heavy grazing again, it's nature's way of, of uh, rejuvenating the soil. So it was a fair amount of that, and I was able to just get beyond one of these circle bushes, which have long spines. Not that you can think of it as a thorn, but it's even more sturdy. It will like punch you right through your tire. Put it that way. Sounds like right. New Mexico. Yeah. So I was able to put myself on the other side of one of those, and he came right over that. But it gave me the distance to put my left hand forward like a boxing jab, and his hand, my, my shotgun was up, and his. One paw knocked that right out of my hand, and I put my hand in his mouth, and his other paw latched onto my arm, just on my bicep, and he crunched in on that, but he then fell into that circle bus, which gave me a little bit of like a leverage thing, and then those two doggo females grabbed him and pulled him away from me, and that gave me enough time to make some ground, and I had a three five seven revolver, which I I pulled like then. My left hand was completely out of action. I, it was really painful. I couldn't use it at all. My arm was also sore where the claws had gone in. So I just had the 357 and then he came at me again, but the dog stopped him. And then I just made sure I got distance and I backed out of there, backed out of there. He came again looking for me and and I was had enough distance so that he couldn't charge again and the dog stopped him. And then eventually the guys arrived and things proceeded from there we managed to shoot him but yeah that 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 portion of him looking at me picking his tail up putting his ears down and just locking onto me and just walking straight at me from that to him being in my face just really wasn't enough time for me to calculate all of that even when i played back in my memory i, I see him here on my hand but i don't really see the the steps before that like in my memory, I can't really see those those steps, those few steps before that. It's yeah. <laughs> oh, I I mean, Chris can see you guys can see my face right now. Yeah. 
Wow. I don't think anyone could say the same thing about a mountain lion encounter. I don't know. Maybe they could. I've never heard it. No, I haven't either. I haven't either. So did he bite the shot did he bite the shotgun before he got to you? No, he slapped it. Okay. He knocked it out. He lunged forward and he and he knocked it out of my hand. Yeah. I was just and wondering if you had any like uh mementos from that occasion, like teeth marks in a shotgun or or Maybe anything like that. Maybe he's got a scar. Yeah. Do you have a scar? I do have a scar on my hand, yeah. The, the bit right through. So Let's see it. Said, Hold it up there. Let's see it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I see that line. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's just one of those things I that... I shotgun and... He had knocked it that it had broken the action open, and the shot, the, 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 the slug was still in the pipe, still in the chamber. So it had that much force that it had opened that lock without. And they normally have to wow. move the lever. Yeah. What are we going to do after that story? When the guys did arrive, um, it was. The one professional hunter right next to me, the client, and then another professional hunter. And at that stage, the sun was really, had just become full over the horizon. And the leopard was sitting down and he was facing the hounds and all the hounds were facing us. So I put him in a position now where, where, um, where he couldn't, he wasn't looking at us. And when the client arrived, we put him on the uh, on the tripod so that he could take a nice shot, and he just couldn't find it in his scope. He just couldn't find the leopard, but it was the only thing in the world right then. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I didn't see anything else in the whole world but that. But he just couldn't find it in, and in the hustle and the bustle, that that alerted the cat to where he was, and he turned, and he came straight for me. He made his line straight at me. So amongst all of the people in that line there. How many people were there? Four, four including me. But he, he came had, at me. Yeah. He identified well, me. he had already marked you. Yes. So so that's an interesting thing that, that he would be able to identify some feature somehow. I don't know what, but yeah, individual feature. And he came at me and um, the, the, the client let off a shot which just sort of hit him and he got a little bit closer and I fired with the 357 and it hit him in the mouth. It knocked out a tooth, but it did nothing. He just kept coming and eventually a few paces off from me, the professional hunter on the far left shot him with a 450, I think he had, but a, a really good caliber and it just buckled him and he died right there. But just a few steps away from me. You know what we'd call that over here? Things got Western real quick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we'd say. Wow. What a story. No kidding. What a story. And and what's the temperature? Um, what was what was the temperature in Celsius or in Fahrenheit, if you know it? Yeah, it'd probably be around somewhere around 12, 15 degrees Celsius. It's a winter okay. morning. Okay, not bad. Not bad. So let's talk. I think I think we just launch off into the sending part from here, and sure. um, you know talk about that individual hunt. Talk about that 
experience that you had there. Um, so, so did you find this track visually or did you rig it or, you know, what did that, that entail, Gavin? So that was visual. I didn't find it myself. The guys that were on that property found it and they called me and I, and I drove over to it. But yes, so that, that, that was visual and that's about 99% of the cats that we run are from a visual track. Mm-hmm. Now there is, there are instances where that track will be at the base of a bait. So, so leopard can be baited. I rarely do that. I, I steer away from doing that. But there are other really successful hunters, hound hunters, that do that almost as a rule. Why do you stay um, away from baits? Why do you prefer to stay away from baits? I, I prefer, I prefer finding the tracks. I prefer, I prefer that whole world of looking for the tracks. If you have a look, you've seen my my website, so Panther Trackers. Panther Trackers is that because. That's really what we do, you know, about, about 5% of this whole deal is actually shooting the animal. There's very little that has to do with actually shooting the animal. That's such a small part of this discipline. Um, that really what you're doing is, is, is tracking. So you're doing it from a macro, like a, uh, um, a zoomed out version. So you'll start with a map on a table. And you'll start to identify habitat, potential habitat and roads and areas. Um, and then you'll maybe zoom in a little bit on that map. And then you'll start to look within those areas where you'd get access. What what um, parts of that river line might hold water or not. And then then you'll zoom in again and now you'll be on the ground. And you'll, you'll be driving those roads in those areas, putting your time into that correct habitat and starting to find tracks and then you'll find female tracks and male tracks and sub tracks and and you'll find old tracks and fresher tracks and you start building up this mental picture of what's happening and you can log all these things also like onto your gps and maybe put that onto things on the on on, on the computer i don't i like the mental game and so then you start working out who lives in this area you know Maybe you've identified this as potentially. A f- it, what it what it sounds like is just a more natural and a more primitive way. Not that we're hunting primitively, but it's it's going back to the roots of, you know, the people that were before us. You know, the way that you're doing it versus you know baiting, I guess. Yeah. And people might hate me for saying that. I don't know. What what I've is that you you. You immerse yourself in the world of that leopard a lot greater to a different a different extreme when you're not reactive hunting, when you're proactively hunting. So you are you are looking for this animal. You are sifting through all that information to find that particular animal. Baiting is reactive, so there are only so many hours in a day and there's so much time that you can spend doing certain things. And if you start hanging many baits, then really you're driving from bait to bait to bait and you're investigating what's happening around the bait. You may well pay some attention between your baits, but you can't afford to, to, to um, spend too much time on that. So 
So going in back to just looking at tracks and finding it by tracks, that's um, that seems a little bit more, to me at least, a little bit more of a, a, an experience. And you've got a team, you've got boots on the ground too. So, you know, when you're a professional hunter and you're, you know, guiding these clients, you've got, you know, like you said, there were four people there total. How, how many people usually are out there helping with this hunt? I mean, it goes, it, it, there's days into before you even turn loose on a track, potentially like these guys knew that cat was in there beforehand. That's right. So you could have a dozen people working on this. That would be hunters and, and, and professional hunters and professional trackers. Um, you might have a smaller crew, but typically in the areas where, where I hunt, at least it's very large, expansive wilderness, um, minimal roads. So you need to have people out walking river lines, um, areas where you're going to find tracks. So, so yes, you can easily have a dozen people. But it also takes skill to find those tracks or to know where to look. It's, I couldn't go there and, and be as successful even just finding a track, correct? You know, you, you couldn't. You would after enough time, but you couldn't immediately. Um, you could take the best pack of hounds in the world from wherever that is, the best cat pack of hounds in the world, and, and stepping into that environment for the first time, you're going to be at a massive disadvantage to someone who's grown up in that environment and that would be anywhere in the world so if one of the best african hunters came to the states it would be no different for them they would be at an immediate disadvantage there's so much um there's so much uh, accumulated knowledge and experience there's no shortcut to it there's no sure route. so it's and it's not just the cat that you're tracking you're tracking because the cat has to eat right so you're taking the big picture into account. You're taking all of that. And I just looked up the, the conversion for 12 degrees Celsius, and it's 53, 54 degrees Fahrenheit, which is, for me, that's ideal temperatures. Yeah. But I'm imagining very dry ground by you, though, but where that was. Yes. Um, so that's, that's, not, that's not, that's just bushveld. That would be savannah bushveld that's not even semi-arid you can still go to semi-arid and then from there you can go to true desert and the guys do hunt leopard in true desert um predominantly in botswana and a bit into namibia but it's a very different hunt there there when they throw the hounds in it's on it's pretty much on a running leopard so the bushman tracker the native trackers will run ahead of the vehicle tracking that leopard by sight until it's until it's almost flushed until it's they'll they'll determine in the tracks that this leopard is now evading them and they'll step back and then the hounds will go in just simply because there's no scent you know? there's no scent you can before. tell in the tracks when a leopard is evading them like that's insane no, it's not. It's, it's, it's <laughs> well. I guess you know the distance between you know the the gate. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Gavin, have you ever got out there and tried to run with the bush trackers? 
No, I haven't. <laughs> Man, that is. They've been, bre- they've been bred for that. Gavin, maybe not so much. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you could only see my head, not my belly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we can't oh, see mine. I was just, I was just ribbing you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so they are incredible trackers. They really are incredible trackers. What is? I mean, when you say that, what makes them incredible? What, what are some of the things that you've actually paint a picture for us to to understand what that looks like? So we touched on this a little bit on the last podcast about how about how growing up in that environment without any distraction changes your immersion in it. That that becomes your world. So isn't it interesting how like children now can grab a mobile phone and navigate through that technology much easier than if you were to hand it to your um, 70 year old, 80 year old mother or father. Yeah. So you'd hand it to your six, seven, eight year old child rather than to that well experienced life lived person. So that might be a, a kind of way of understanding and looking at it. When you grow up in that environment, everything has significance, everything has a meaning. Uh, everything is an icon everything is is means something so a smiley face on an emoji means something to a seven-year-old and the 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 distance between the paws on a trotting leopard means something to the bushman so it's really just a matter of that world. Now, there is one really interesting thing about this as well. There was a book written. It's called, I think it's called The Art of Tracking, and it's by a man. It could be Dr. or Professor Louis Liebenberg. And, and this guy went and did his thesis on what he believes is the origin of science, the original science. And he went and he lived with the Bushmen so much so that he learned the language. He hunted with them. And, and um, it's a fascinating read. I can send you a, a link. Yes, please his do. Theory, yeah, his theory is that tracking is the original human science. And he, and he's, he says this, and, and the readers, I mean, your listeners should probably go, yes, you're pulling it up there right now. That's right, yes. So, so you might take a little excerpt if you've got it in front of you there, Lauren, Maybe just have a look at the introduction or, or it might it might describe better than the words I'm using. But really what he's saying is the, the process, the scientific process of discovery right now and always has been is that kind of formula is you, you think about something, you believe, you believe there's such a thing as gravity. Yeah, so you, you, you formulate a theory, then you have to prove it by um, experimentation that leads to a conclusion, and then it must be peer-reviewed by other people of equal or more competency to 
for that to become um, decided as a law, as as a as as a scientific fact. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that would be the process of saying there's such a thing as gravity. Blah blah blah. He went down the line and proved that it was. And Louis Liebenberg shows in that book quite quite conclusively how tracking is the original science. It's the same mental process. It's the same journey that modern day scientists would go on as what that that tracker is doing. Um, so it's just a different environment really. But the more um, the more you apply yourself to it, the more you allow it to flow within you, the more the more I don't know about saying intelligence, but the more your mind can can work that out, the better the tracker you are, and I guess the better the scientist you are. Well, there's a there's a theory about human perception. So if you think about something and you dwell on it, then you will start seeing it. So take for example, you know, say you want a Toyota Tacoma truck, okay, and you're driving down the road, and you've been thinking about buying a Tacoma truck, and as you drive down the road, every Toyota Tacoma that passes you, you notice it, you know, there, mm-hmm. there's one, there's one, yeah. there's one, oh, there's one, I like the way that one looks, you know, so it's, it's, there's something to that, and I can't remember the exact terminology of it. Bombs, notice all the prems. Yes. Yeah, so as you're growing up in this culture, in as a bush tracker does, it becomes a thing that you're constantly thinking about. You know, it's how you feed your family, and so it becomes second nature. And I can give you a perfect example of that from my own experience is riding down the road with with uh, Western hunters, and, and the story that jumps out to me that I recall most frequently is riding down a road with Kevin Hall and Mm -hmm. we're riding around in, in Idaho and we're driving down the road 35 miles an hour. And Kevin's like, there's a lion track. It was, it was in the snow and he's just like, there's a lion track. And I, I immediately hit the brakes. I was like, you did not see a lion track going this fast down this road. He goes, Oh yeah, it's right back there. And we back up. We get out. I took pictures of it, the whole nine yards. But I wouldn't have known if it was a lion or a deer or a coyote. <laughs> it's amazing. But it comes from, you know, being immersed in the culture, that being what you do. And I know other hunters that do it too. Larry Anderson's the same way. You know, I'm sitting there looking at every track on the snow and he's just kind of drinking coffee and telling jokes. And he's like, oh, there's a lion track, you know. So, yeah, I think there's something to that. You have cold-nosed hounds as well is similar along that line. It's that, it's that, that sort of standard, that, that, and I'm talking pack hunting. It's that what's established in that pack. And especially if you keep going generation to generation to generation, it's, it's this, um, um, what's the right word, um, epigenetic transfer. So it, it's, it's like in a business, the unwritten ground rules. There's nowhere on the board that says 
you should not park your vehicle forwards in the parking bay. You just notice <laughs> everybody in the first part of the parking bay. And right. then you will do that. So there's no notice that says that. Except for me, I drive him backwards. I always pull him backwards. So, so I think I think that's the same thing that gets developed in in packs of hounds that keep rolling and rolling and rolling. At least. So I was able to pull up this book, and and there's a PDF of it, and um, just reading the introduction is is very interesting, and I can post the link on our group. Um, that that people might enjoy reading this, so it's something to look into. Definitely, I I could read some of it, but I think people should take a look on their own. Now, yeah, there you, you go. You just pull. You just talked about something that was mentioned on the podcast that was aired the week that we're recording this. Is talking about cold nosed dogs, and I was going to ask you not necessarily about cold nosed hounds but what is your pack compromised of where do you find that balance do you have wh- where do you find your success so in diversity um you have to have the start dog or i'll, I'll, I'll reverse just a little bit on that so i've had to self-discover everything i, I was not in and I wish I had been, but I was not ever in a position where I had um, people around me that were doing this regularly and and growing up in that environment. I had to I had to work everything out on my own, um, and still am. So I turned a lot to 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 the French houndsmen, just because there was a lot of emphasis on that pack hunting, and there's even positions that have been given names for a pack of eight dogs so there'll yeah. be the dog the rapprocher so that's the dog that starts the track that directly translated they say take takes the foot of the night so it takes wow. the track old trailing dog there'll be a specific um dog that's great at running tracks when it hits the road so when it goes from a really good scenting condition to suddenly taps off onto gravel where there's a complete change in that scent dynamic or that scent presentation, but that dog is able to 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 do that. So, so I took a lot of that and I and I used that as a template to try and formulate what I did. And did, to a great did you did you have French mentors or did you just read this? How did you learn that? Yes, so I was directed there by. I've only had like two mentors that I can refer to. Uh, the late Tienus Buerta, um, he died. He was he was crushed by an elephant on a on a hunt, and another man, Jerome Ngema, who is still alive and still hunting bushpig in KwaZulu Natal, and he's probably into his seventies by now. So those are the only two. But Tienus Buerta is the man that um, pointed me towards French hounds, but not not like go look there, Gav. Just opening doors through conversations. And then I and then I go investigate further. Um, so yes, it's not something that I just thought of. It, it I was directed there through that. Um, so yes, to come back to that, and there's a few ways of tacking this, and some guys do it differently in 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 Southern Africa. But the way I like it is to have a dog or two dogs that are that I can really really trust in 
to take a, an old track. And as mentioned before, our old track is like 12 hours. You know, we don't really need to do anything. We want to catch that leopard. Mm-hmm. That's our primary thing. If we wanted to just hunt continuously, then then we may be looking at completely different dogs. But we're looking at success for a paying client. So there's so so that is one of the most determining factors of how we operate. So 12 hours is pretty much the most that you really need, maybe a little bit longer, but typically around that, depending on, on what the, the climatic situation is. Um, and then I'd like to have two dogs that are going to potentially replace that dog. So two dogs that would be of a similar breeding, maybe directly related, uh, showing the same characteristics. And these dogs don't necessarily need to want to catch that animal. They just need to be in love with the scent, like heroin addicts to the scent. Okay. And, and they get us going and they get us moving. And then the central part of the pack, that can be younger dogs, eager dogs, dogs that are, as long as they're pretty much game-proof, but dogs that want to that want to get their teeth in the game, dogs that really want to to catch, they need to be faster. They need to be a little bit more agile, um, and and they then will perform the later the later role. Um, and then we like to keep in, like mentioned, the Burwantont. So that's the guy that. When you get really close up, and, and that Burwantont has to hunt with the hounds from a pup. He has to be there from really small to understand the different voices, the different tempo, the different change in what's happening, the excitement in the voice. We're getting closer so that he knows not to go off and chase antelope in it because you can never go and prove <laughs> those. He has to have been part of the pack forever. Like That's right. That is his crew. Yeah. Yeah. It's very difficult to manage that tool if it has if he has not or he or she has not been part of that pack. You couldn't go and get this champion sighthound and throw him in with the scent hounds and expect him not to chase all the other things that they go through while they're in pursuit. Um and then he would he would outpace them and he makes pretty much first contact and that saves the lead hounds, which are your your more valuable hounds, and he'll take the first contact. They're bite orientated, so they want to try and put some teeth in, and then that also puts the brakes on the leopard. Not that we have to stop them so much because it is a cat. It does. It, it's not going to run forever and ever. But it's nice to to just put a little bit of direct pressure. Um, and then the rest of the hounds will, will, will make the breakdown, bay him or tree him. And and then we like to have doggos in the pack or, or hard bay dogs. I was going to ask that, you about doggos. Yeah. Yeah. And and what they do is they, they, um, they sort of bluff the leopard into thinking that all those hounds bite as hard. Mm. Or all those hounds are as tough as that. Because in many cases, the leopard has come across other predators numerous times, you know, every year probably in his existence. There's wild dogs, there's hyenas, there's lions. 
So they have a lot of um, competitors that they are encountering all the time. So it's not a entirely unfamiliar scenario to be uh, pressurized by another predator. So they have ingrained anti-predator defenses or, or, or techniques. So, so to give him a bit of bluff that these aren't a pack of wild dogs that are not really going to to hurt him, one or two of the harder dogs, if he if, if he makes contact and it doesn't have the same response that he's had from wild dogs, then that convinces him to tree. And treeing is the best place for us. To put the leopard in the tree is the best place for everybody. Mm. It's the best place for the leopard because we can make a true trophy uh, determination then. It's also the safest place because we know where he is. And it's also the most comfortable place because it could be that the, the client might be trailing by an hour or two hours and we just need that leopard to be in that position. I mean, this is perfect scenario. It doesn't always work sure. out like that. Sure. This is this is the idea of constructing the pact in that way. And when it works, it works great, but doesn't it doesn't always work like that. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Dakota 283 offers you unparalleled protection for your hounds. We're talking about military-grade kennel crates. Uh, I got got one of these two-door kennel crates here at the house. It is super heavy-duty. It's got slap latches on it that are stainless steel. Easily fits in the back of an SUV, or if you're traveling with a camper shell, it's a great way to keep your dog protected while you are traveling. You just got to check out their Dash series. This is a watering system, and I've used a lot of these portable waterers over the years, but this system is all integrated into one unit, and the way it's designed out of high-impact plastic, the water stays in the tank when you're not using it because you can put a plug in it. Check them out. Uh, the 3.5 is also compact enough that I can store it behind the seat of my pickup truck while I'm out hunting when it's super cold. I've had exterior tanks before, and as soon as I go to cold climates, then I've got to figure out how I'm going to get water to my hounds, and the dash takes care of that. So check out Dakota 283 at dakota283.com and at checkout enter the code hxp10 and get 10 percent off of your order okay so i have a question for you and this is technical to maybe the sending part of it so your your bush trackers find the track and they can tell you a lot from that point but how much of the atmospheric um things going on in in your 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 atmosphere there your humidity your moisture levels you know do you take all that into consideration when you're determining whether or not you can catch catch that leopard time of day absolutely and and i always start with the barometer and i always start with the the barometric pressure and i start in two places with that so i'll start at the synoptic chart and try get an idea if it's available. It's not always available. A lot of the areas where we are, it's sketchy information. But if you're able to, you, you have a look at that and you see sort of what the general isobar pressures are going to be. And that can also give you an idea of what's what's coming. 
you know, what what's existing right now and what's coming. So is there a cold front coming, is a warm front coming? Are you sitting currently in a warm trough? There's a lot of those factors that give you a lot of information. Um, and then the second part of the barometric pressure is actually knowing what it is in real time. So you need to have a device for that. I have, I have it on my watch um, and, and that gives you a history, which is very important. I'll come back to that in a second, but it gives you an idea of where you're sitting at. So just so technical information on that, um, the line, the, so isobars are very similar to what um, you find on the topographic map in terms of gradients. Um, so you, you have a look at your, your, your isobars and sort of the, the, the middle point, the mean point between high pressure and low pressure, the transition is 1,000 HPA hectopascals. Um, so when you start going greater than that, if you had 1,020 hectopascals on your watch, you're in great high pressure conditions. If you're dropping down at like 950, you're in very low pressure conditions. And then to expect the dogs to have um, scent availability is is going to be sketchy. So that's at least a starting point on that. Um, and then, yes, the well, final let's, point. Let's, let's hold up and get a little technical on that, Gavin. So okay. why, why does a hound have problems in low pressure versus high pressure? with your experience? So high pressure is heavy air. High pressure is typically cold air, cooler air, and it's not rising air. Um, it's air that's being forced to the ground. It is impacting high pressure on the earth. Low pressure is the opposite. It's light air, it's rising air, and it's often associated with heat or even just radiated heat. So you can get pressure change as soon as the sun starts to come up and warm the earth up. And that's that localized pressure. So you'd step away from that um, 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 synoptic chart for that, and you'd have to be monitoring real, real time on the ground. So high pressure is going to be keeping those molecules lower to the ground. Low pressure is going to be doing the opposite. And I'll give you a very good practical example of that. The vulture finds its kill how how does a vulture that's sitting beyond sight in the atmosphere floating on thermals how does that now know that the lions have killed a buffalo in a patch of reeds next to the river there's a couple different ways for one they've got ex extremely good eyesight but the vulture is also one of the few birds avian species that actually has a sense of smell which is That's very in tune it's very acute yes and that shows you that that scent molecule hmm, of even a freshly killed animal not not even a, a a decomposing animal a freshly killed animal is rising in the atmosphere on a low pressure so that's been oh. carried into that air beyond sight where you cannot even see those vultures. Even if you took binoculars and looked up in the sky, you wouldn't see them. Yes. But they sent up there. How? So scent is being, is, is the air carries scent. The air impacts on scent. So, um, so the opposite of that is when there's a very high pressure, all the vultures are sitting on the trees. They're not in the sky. Right. Yeah. 
They're Firstly, conserving they energy. Yes. And they can't get up there because they need the thermals. They need the rising air. So you won't see vultures leaving the tree, their roost until 9, 10 a.m. in the morning, typically, because they need the earth to be that warm for those thermals to rise, for them to pick up. Because they don't flap, 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 flap up into the... To, they get on a high pressure and it just carries them up. And then they might drop down into from from a um, on a low pressure sorry that carries them up and they might drop down to uh, through a high pressure until they get another low and then that'll take them the next step higher so they almost ladder their way up because they're efficient and effective everything in nature is efficient and effective they're not just wasting energy to go out there and look for the next meal they're they're there's they're being effective and efficient Yes. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but a vulture we will. thrives. Yeah, a vulture <laughs> thrives on on a low pressure day, when yes. we might thrive on a high pressure day. Exactly. Okay. Hold on. Yeah. Now, now I said I'd I'd talk about the history of it, which is also important. Now, if you want to trail a leopard that passed twelve hours ago. But it passed in that area on quite a steep, low pressure. Makes sense that there's probably not going to be that much scent around because it never deposited that much scent because the air took it away, even at the time of passing. Which is not that common because typically um, in those kind of pressure systems you need radiated heat but if you were to get a high a, 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 a cold front comes through a high pressure front that forces a low pressure ahead of it to rise and you'll find that on that isobar on that uh, synoptic chart those isobars are a lot closer to each other which shows a steep um, rise or a steep drop whichever but typically it would show the rise and that forces air up. So it's almost like, think of a chalkboard duster wiping away the chalk on a board. Mm -hmm. That's effectively what that high pressure has done by forcing that low pressure to take it away. So if you come across the tracks, they're in the sand. They're beautiful to read with your eyes. And you put your dogs down and they all go and have a wee up against the tree and they look at you like, all right, what are we doing today? And you're scratching your head like, how is this, this cat past you? You might even have a picture on a camera trap, you know? Well, the answer is that there's just no scent because it was low pressure at the time. There was not enough scent deposited or what was deposited has been carried away. So on a low pressure day, you know, you've got that scent rising. It's going up there. How far out of range do you think that that scent is carried away from that particular area? I mean, you so, know, you, do you understand what I'm asking you? You know, you've, yes. you, so I'll give you an example. Today I'm driving home just two hours ago and a bobcat crossed the road in front of me. It's an extremely low pressure day. We've got high humidity. And now I know that that scent is rising because it, it, plumes off of a living creature and so it's being carried on the air currents 
what are my chances of catching that bobcat? Even though I wanted to come home and grab my plots, but I had to do this podcast with you guys, I wanted to go back up there and run this cat. What are my chances? Low. Low, and especially coupled with high humidity, because then you're getting even greater pressure, I mean uh, uh, evaporation, and you're even getting greater attachment because that moisture, the, 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 um, the organisms of the scent works attaching themselves to moisture. So, yeah, low low chance. Yeah, which probably is, which probably is the final point of this is. Okay, we know all of these things, hmm? but knowing it doesn't change it. <laughs> oh. We're still gonna try. <laughs> We're actually still in the same point. It's a complete. It's a complete circle you start there you go around you come back to the same point this is the track i have you know i can read the textbook on everything about it but it's still the track i've got to work right i guess that's what my question was i mean me going away until now when the thermals are moving down into my evening here you know the chances of me going back right now i mean we're talking two hours old a a hound should be able to run a two-hour old track but Based on those, all those other factors that are going on in the in the environment right now, you know the chances of me going back that that scent has been dispersed. It's ridden on the 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 rafts have ridden on this humidity. It's been moved around by current. I mean, it's it's well, and chances Chris, are there so might have low. been a there might have been a deer that just crossed around there too. Your I'll get a hard strike. <laughs> I'll get a hard strike. I'll get a box shaker right there. Um, my question is, so we've talked about all this pressure and everything. Where does vegetation come into play? All right. So, so a couple of things there. One of the main things around, around that vegetation is something that's called, um, uh, I try to think of the word now. Um, it's, it's, it's combining evaporation with, the moisture that vegetation releases as well. Um, Osmosis. It, it might be no. that it's 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 a combination of this. It'll come to me, and and, and I'll and I'll I'll get to it in a minute. Um, so, I think it's I think the fact e- is something like evapotranspiration. Thank you, thank you, evapotranspiration. So an acre of corn, an acre of maize will transpire or, 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 or evaporate, evapotranspirate 14,000 liters in a 24-hour period. So plants are also releasing moisture all the time. At the same time, I think structurally they hold and they allow scent particles to bind to them better than things like sand, which are almost like lots of minute mirrors. If you were to look at them individually, they all sort of non-porous sections just grouped together. Mm -hmm. That's why sand might be really difficult to track on. And as soon as you get some vegetation, the dogs will go and put their nose on this end of this branch and then uh, at the base of this little 
push over here and and they'll still get sent that way but scent is still released from vegetation as well it's not your it's not we're going into vegetation so all's good well we use a term called scent picture you know a dog a dog establishes a scent picture in the environment that it's in so if you've got corn if you've got ragweed if you i don't know what your native bushes are where you're hunting but you know any native plant here has its own unique scent uh, uh odor that it's putting off so you take that plus you put the scent of the quarry in it that that you're pursuing and a dog is able and capable of deciphering all of that you know where where we are not if we walk into a a cornfield that's pollinating here in indiana we smell corn you know we don't we don't we don't break things up like that and a dog can but don't look at it through your nose because our world is visual and yes sir that is that is the comparison for their world being through their nose. So walk into that that cornfield, close your eyes, step into it right now. How many different tones and shades of green can you see? It's not green. There are literally hundreds of different. What does the green look like in the shadow as opposed to in the sunlight on the edge of the blade of each leaf on the tip at the base of the stalk? What the, that 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 um that complex amount of information we're getting through our eyes is quite the same as what they at least in my understanding my perception my theory is is what they're getting through their nose so we could stand there and i could say hey um chris lauren do you see that tree over there if you have a look on the top right corner there's one leaf that you, you know, it's turning autumn now. There's one leaf that's already starting to go slightly brown. Can you see that one? And you'll say, yeah, yeah, I see that one. What about it? So mm-hmm. and I just wanted to know if you could see it. Well, so to me, that's a tree full of leaves. They all look pretty much the same. They're all the same tree. They're all the same shape. They're pretty much all the same size. But there's one very small little difference there. And I think that's the same for the dog, right. they, for the hound. And the more experienced they are and the more they put in that um, repetitive area, the more they they know everything about it. Wow, that's great. That was a great analogy. Yeah, yeah. And, and knowing that environment is also a major factor. I'll give you another a quick story. We were hunting close to the Botswana border. It was in South Africa. And it was on a property that had been um, claimed by the government uh, through a land uh, redistribution process. Back in the day, it was this really fabulous lodge, um, and it had turned to shit. It had gone to nothing. The, 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 the beneficiaries just didn't have the skill set, the market, the, the business um, acumen, to keep it running as it is. And obviously, I mean, how, what a difficult position they put into. But anyway, the um, it was a really beautiful lodge, but it had sort of eroded down to not much. So window frames are gone and door frames had been gone. And 
But what was significant in this, they had this really nice water feature. And it was this um, uh, several levels of rock pools where the water dropped from one to the next to the next. Okay, but you needed it to work on a pump system and have water. But just the natural rain allowed water to pool there because when it was built, it was built with integrity. So we went past this lodge because this was one of the major water sources and there was a female leopard that was drinking there regularly. And it's quite a dry area. They're fairly water dependent. Um, you know, say every three days or so she'd, she'd come in there. And it's a good thing to know what's happening with the females because there's a really good chance a male is going to be coming looking for a female and that's your opportunity. So you don't just disqualify it. Oh, it's a female, don't worry about it. You still monitor that. So we were monitoring that and I found a regular path that she was going in and out of the water and I put a camera trap up on there just to see, just as a, as a, as a monitoring point. And I got, um, I got her coming into the water in the evening and it must have been just the small mechanisms in the camera trap because it's an infrared light it's might have just been the little shutter or whatever it was just a slight click just a small sound but the 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 the, the picture i got of her is looking directly at the camera hmm. so as she came past it did something and her reaction was so close so quick that that she looked at it Hmm. she went up and she drank water and when she came back and we know this because we looked at the tracks when she came back she did a, a, a loop around that camera trap and then went back onto her path she avoided the camera altogether camera trap on the way back wow and and she was only notified of it one time hmm. so so knowledge of environment is is immense and i think the more that the hounds are working a particular playing field the better they'll get at it if you take them to a different playing field they're probably going to struggle at least temporarily right sure that yeah. happened to me and yeah lauren your your experience is real similar to mine you know you take take dogs and you travel with them and you put them in a new environment they have to have time to adjust, you know, they're, they're just, cause what they smell as a runnable track in moist ground, uh, high humidity, you know, whatever environment they're in is going to be different for the same species when you go somewhere else. So they've got a, they, I saw this when I went to Arizona and bear hunted the first time with some for real bear dogs. I know they're bear dogs. I've seen them tree bears, but we're rigging down this road and we just get a bump off the rig. Just boop. And we were, oh, that that's not a runnable track. You know, that was our assumption. That's not a runnable track. Well, some guys came in behind us that had some dogs from there that just blew up on it. So now we're sitting there thinking, what kind of bear dogs did we bring to this show? And And they ended up catching that bear. But it was that that was it was that situation where you put them in a new environment, and now they recognize the scent and they give you an indication that it was there. But according to their experience, it wasn't enough to b make them blow up on it. You know, you didn't get a box shaker out of it. 
my prediction is that if you hunted that same situation for a month and you showed them that you could catch bears on that, you put them on the ground, you let them work it out, you 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 be patient and you work work them through the hard stuff. Yeah, at the end of the month, that's going to be a box shaker. It is, yeah. You know, this crossovers to translocation. Uh, a lot, uh, this was a bit of a buzzword, I don't know, 20 years ago. So you have a problem animal, let's catch it and relocate it to an area where there's few of them. You do that. The first thing they do in the morning of waking up from their, their, their drug trip is they head for home. Because... Yeah. You know what would you do if uh, if if we came in in the middle of the night, <laughs> zipped you up in a sleeping bag and dropped you in the middle of um, Beijing? Yeah. Your first very first thought is, where's the airport? Yeah. You know? but, We're not but in Kansas anymore, Toto. Yeah, it's more so human human um, um, uh, naivety, thinking that taking this animal from this environment and putting it in an environment that's very, very similar. I mean, it's a wild animal that's going in a wild environment. Why? They don't. They don't. They don't know where it is. It looks different. It smells different. They don't know anything. It's like, where's the toilet? Where's the kitchen? Yeah, yeah. Who's getting all the beer? Where do I find food? (laughs) Hey, speaking of that, um, (laughs) So what they did find, however, is that if they take that animal and they put it in a um, habituation boma. A what? A habituation bo- uh, a boma. What's a boma? An enclosure. Okay. So they put it into an enclosure in the new habitat, in the new area, for 30 days, 60 days, dependent, whatever that the success of the translocation is is massively increased. Wow. Hmm. I'm thinking about, you know, bear, you know, habituated black bears that our state agencies are going out and capturing and then trying to transplant and then they come back. Yeah, that's... even raccoons that can thrive anywhere. Yes. You spray paint its tail, you know, you release it somewhere else, that sucker is back. That is so funny <laughs> you mentioned that. We had an old timer here that was that was catching raccoons and he was transporting them to the next county and he started spray painting them because he was he was convinced that he was getting the same raccoons and then the spray painted raccoons he was catching them again in his barn. You yeah. know, yeah. we're talking fifteen, twenty miles away. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And they came back pretty irritated and frustrated with him. I hope they did more damage as well. (laughs) He's just wasting everybody's time. (laughs) He was just trying to be nice. Yeah. 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 Well, I've got a question, um, and we'll wrap this one up. But So you talked about all of these isobars, and you you said you're getting them on your watch. Tell us where we can find that sort of information. You know, give us the resources for that stuff, Gavin, because I think this is going to be very valuable for for uh, us on this side. And of- I'd, 
I just tried looking in the Weather Channel app, and you know you'll watch the Weather Channel and they'll talk about pressure, but you guys, the Weather Channel app is no good. <laughs> All right, so I think a place to start would be a Bureau of Meteorology. Nova. That might be a state one. You might have a national one. Yeah. See whatever works for you. The, the closer you can refine it to your given hunting area, the better, obviously. Okay. Um, but yes, things, general weather patterns, they do cover large areas. Um, then you can even have a look on your Garmin Alpha and you can pull up a barometer there. There's yes. an altimeter and a barometer. Right. Now, what's very important to know about this is you do need to calibrate that to the um, height above sea level. And you need to constantly calibrate that if you are going to have major changes because that's its functioning technology. It's working off um, the altimeter to calculate the barometric pressure. So pay attention to that. You'll even see changes in that if you do not calibrate it and you climb on top of a mountain, really, you know, you, you mm -hmm. do a couple of thousand feet different. Suddenly, the pressure system looks completely different. But if you calibrate it, it you'll get back to where you're supposed to be. So you can find that there. Um, I use a Sunto watch, S-U-U-N-T-O. I forget the model name, but that gives me, I think it's a 12 and I could even do a 24-hour. But it gives me a... Um, a um, a graph, so a bar graph. Okay. Um, give you uh, the two axes, and your your bottom, uh, uh, your horizontal axis is going to be time, and your vertical axis is going to be pressure. And you can then see almost what's happening real time. So the watch takes a certain time to calibrate all this, but it's good enough. Mm -hmm. You can have a look at it and say. We had a thousand. Right now, I'm looking at my watch. It's a thousand and thirty-seven hectopascals. I wish I was hunting. It's perfect. So it's excellent. I don't even um, know what you just said. <laughs> Garmin. So uh, I'm. You're showing us your Garmin yes. right now. Yeah. So I'm looking at my Gar Garmin 200i right now, and there's in setup. Um, you can go to sensors, but it sounds like you need an external sensor. The Garmin won't do it by itself. You need a additional. I don't know that. Um, I don't know what the 200 shows, but definitely in the 100, there is okay. uh, an altimeter which can show you height, you know, and it also runs right. it on But you can select barometer on that as well. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'll turn that on and see. And, and for all you guys in the States, um, you can go on the App Store and get the NOAA Noah. weather. NOAA, yeah. Yep. So that's something to look for in the States. Yep. And I would say that you could pick that up on an Apple Watch or a Garmin Watch or, you know, something like that, anything that you've got. That's valuable information. Yeah, and it's nice to see in real time again. Knowing it doesn't mean you can do anything about it, but it, it can sort of stop you scratching your head too much, at least. Yeah. Do you find it, Lauren? I, I pulled up my, I turned my 100 on, and if you go to setup, 
And then altimeter. There's a barometer. There's a barometer mode, pressure trending, um, calibrate. So I'll just have to look. Yeah, um, you're there. On the 200, yeah, on the 200, I just don't see that same type of setup on its, uh, what I'm seeing. It might still be there. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Perfect. Well, I think we better wrap this one up, guys. Gavin, I appreciate you coming on here. What a great conversation. Good stories. You know, <laughs> we're always we're always looking for, you know, just good practical information to up our game and, and really move into that next level of extreme performance. And and I've said it before, but you know, one of the the most basic things that uh we need to know is is how is that scent from that game we're trying to catch being dispersed and how is the dog's nose interpreting that and all the different things i mean it's it's an it's an ongoing never-ending quest to figure that out for us because like you said we live in a visual world they're living in an olfactory world and and it's the but we're capable of gaining knowledge and if we want to be more successful, then we've got to constantly be learning. You know, if you're not learning in this game, there isn't any, there isn't any I've arrived type situation. I've got it all figured out because that doesn't exist. Um, you know, I thought about a, a quote the other day. Uh, Learners will inherit the earth, but the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. And you can think about that with your hound's nose. You can think about that with technology. You can, I mean, just think about the gravity of that state. That statement. Uh, if you're willing to learn, you're always going to be able to deal with the world you're living in. But if you think you've arrived and you've got it all figured out, just one second ago, the world has changed. So, what a what a great what a great conversation, Lauren. You got anything? You guys have done it all. You have you have wrapped it up. You have nailed it. I am, I'm happy. Gavin, what you got to say? You follow your hounds, and I'll follow mine. You got it. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> we'll just wrap it up right there.